we think about the current state of telehealth and mHealth, many questions come up. One of those being, how we are going to harness technology for the good of both patients and healthcare providers? That's a great question and also the topic of today's episode of Telehealth Talk, the future of digital health. I'm Brian Lee, one of the content creators for the South Central Telehealth Resource Center. Welcome to Telehealth Talk. What you're about to hear is a presentation presented by Dr. Cam Patterson. Dr. Patterson is the Chancellor of the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. This is one you don't want to miss. Stay with us. I'm going to talk about the future of, of, of digital health, but I'm not a, a technical person, so I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about specific digital health applications. Uh, what I'd like to really focus on is why. Why do we need to do this? What is the future likely to look like? Uh, and uh, begin to develop a conversation around how we are going to harness technology for the good of both patients and healthcare providers. Um, and I will contrast that with, let's say, the current state of electronic medical records. Uh, how many of you have read Atul Gawande's paper from two weeks ago in the New Yorker on electronic medical records? If you haven't read it, you should leave this auditorium at 1 o'clock and go hunt it down and read it. Uh, because, you know, I think it's a really accurate, thoughtful reflection on where we are with respect to electronic medical records. And you could boil that article down to one central point, which is in 2018, electronic medical records are probably really good for patients. You know, we probably improved the veracity of the information that we have on individual patients, but it's bad for providers. You know, it's a net negative for providers. And the future of digital health has to be a solution that is a net positive both for patients and for providers. And I think that that's where we need to evolve to. So let me begin with a story about a family friend of mine. I grew up with uh, a guy named Barney March. And we actually called Barney March Little Barney March because his dad was Big Barney March. And Big Barney March, to me, was a legend. Uh, He was uh, a physician, internal medicine, one of the first cardiologists who trained uh, at UAB. uh, And he split his practice between internal medicine and cardiology in Mobile, Alabama. And whenever I happened to see Big Barney March, it was just like, you know, it was like a deity had walked into the room. And uh, family, friends, still keep in touch with them. Uh, As I was winding up my time at Vanderbilt, uh, getting my undergraduate degree, I realized I wanted to go into medicine. So I went back down to Mobile to talk to Dr. Barney March, Big Barney March, uh, about his thoughts on profession in medicine. And his office was almost all the way downtown on Old Shell Road in Mobile, and I met him around 6.30 p.m. on a Friday evening. And Big Barney March sat me down, and he said, 
Cam, you know, I can tell from looking at you that you're not going to listen to anything that I say and that you're going to go ahead and go to medical school. But let me tell you this. Things just aren't like they were in the old days. I've got all this paperwork, all this stuff that slows me down. I don't have time to spend <coughs> focused, concentrated effort with my patients. And I said, well, thank you very much. And I applied to Emory, and, and the rest evolved as it did. The reason why I tell you this story is this was 1985. Right now, we consider that the golden era of you know, being able to spend time with your patients, and, and you know, we, we bemoan everything that's happened since then as uh, those things that detract us from you know, those wonderful, ineffable moments where we're connecting with the patient and doing good for them. Uh, so I say that because someday somebody's going to look to us in 2018, and they're probably going to say, oh, that was the golden era, while we're complaining about, you know, having to sift through electronic medical records. Um, what is it that we do have to look forward to as we, as we move forward? Well, uh, we have an evolving population. 35% of Americans are obese. Every year, the percentage of Americans who are obese goes up one percentage point. That's amazing to think about. Find a picture from the streets of New York uh, in the 1970s, and everybody looks like him. You know, uh, the world has, has rapidly changed, and it's going to continue to evolve. And, and with increasing prevalence of obesity comes increasing prevalence of hypertension and diabetes and all, all these challenges that are going to uh, face us as healthcare providers. On the other hand, uh, we have all these millennials running around who are tech savvy. They're going to be accessing healthcare in a different way. Uh, and we need to prepare for that uh, as well as we think about the future. We're also going to be confronted with immense amounts of data. And in, in Dr. Gawande's article, he talks about how difficult it is to find the right data in an electronic medical record currently. You know, you really have to hunt for the data that you want because there's so much data in there. Well, imagine that we are able to track every heartbeat in every patient that we follow. You know, the technical capability of doing that is, is available right now. And eventually, that data is going to be ported to physicians, healthcare professionals who have followed in the footsteps of people like Big Barney March. And it's going to be difficult to manage continuous blood glucose monitoring, continuous blood pressure monitoring, continuous heart rate monitoring, continuous everything monitoring. Being able to wander through that data, making sure that you're grabbing meaningful data, making sure that when you don't need quantitative data, you're not getting quantitative data, that's going to be a, a, a growing challenge for us. And it really is right around the corner. You know, you can use your Apple Watch to monitor a lot of these things already, and, and the rest of it is, is coming very soon. Um, innovation is going to increase. You know, we've been talking about machine learning, artificial intelligence for decades. Um, but the light bulb really is going off in terms of its real-life applicability, and we're seeing that all around us. You know, I was um, trying to resolve a billing issue last night online, uh, and I was chatting, and after about three or four minutes, I realized that I was not chatting with a real-life human being. I was chatting with a bot 
who walked me through the problem and the problem got solved. Uh, we're going to be doing more and more and more of that. And the, the, a lot of that will be good. Some of that will be fraught with peril. Um, and then and Curtis uh, mentioned you know, the issues that we have in terms of um, uh, health policy, how we're going to pay for the health care that we have. We currently obviously pay way too much for health care. Uh, some of that is on the books. A lot of our health care costs though, aren't really being counted. You know, imagine that uh, you live in Jonesboro and you drive into Little Rock for uh, a, an OBGYN procedure and then drive back. When we're talking about health care costs, we're not talking about your time off from work. We're not talking about your travel expenses. Uh, we're not talking about the risk that you incur by being on the highway. Uh, there are, you know, our health care costs are actually greater than the 17.6, 18% of our GDP. And you know, if we don't figure out a way to reduce that, uh, we're eventually not going to be able to make ends meet from a, a, a governmental standpoint. Now, where are we today here in the state of Arkansas? I think everybody knows that Arkansas is particularly challenged uh, when it comes to uh, the state of health care. Uh, if you live in Little Rock, you probably don't worry about finding a, a primary care provider. Uh, you don't worry about finding a dentist. Um, a little known fact, there are more cardiologists per capita in Little Rock than there are in Manhattan. And I lived in Manhattan. There are a lot of cardiologists in Manhattan. Uh, I think that that prevents us from appreciating that you don't have to go very far from Little Rock uh, to really have difficulty accessing healthcare. And it's two-thirds of the landmass of the state of Arkansas is seeing population density decreasing. Think about that. If you're going into practice and practice of medicine, you know, are you going to start a practice in a town that's having a decreasing population? You know, that's a great way to, to have a, an empty practice. Um, those trends are, are, are going to continue for us. Now, it's not all bad news. Uh, you know, more Arkansans are graduating from high school now than ever before, and that number is continuing to increase. And that's a leading indicator of, of po positive health care trends, and we want to see that continue. Uh, and we have made a difference in some areas. You know, stroke. You know, I, I, I may not have the numbers exactly right, but I think 10 years ago, the state of Arkansas was 51st overall in stroke outcomes behind the other 49 states in Guam. Uh, and each year, since we put together this comprehensive strategy to manage strokes statewide, UNC, our UAMS being the, the underpinnings to it, um, we've seen progress moving forward, jumping over state after state after state. Now, we're not number one. You know, I think we're in the high 30s. But it shows that a concerted statewide effort can make a difference. So... You know, I, th I think the real question is going to be, uh, 10 years from now, what is going to be the healthcare opportunities and outcomes for a child who is born in four city? You know, right now there's not a primary care provider in that town. There's not a pediatrician in that town. Uh, and you know, what can we do to make sure that that child has healthcare outcomes that are just as good? as a child who's born here in Little Rock or a child who's born in Fayetteville. And that, to me, is 
the fundamental challenge for digital health in a state like, like Arkansas. Now, the other reason why digital health is so important for us is that healthcare is a truly antiquated industry. You know, if you look at trends in other areas, if you look at Google, you know, if you look at logistics companies, we don't look anything like them. We don't look anything like them. Everything that we do, number one, is dependent on bricks and mortar. You know, we are a heavily bricks and mortar dependent industry. You know, our biggest asset at UAMS, buildings here on this campus. You know, that's not true in other industries. We are also heavily dependent on FTEs. You know, we've got 10,300 employees at UAMS generating $1.5 billion in revenues. Okay? There are plenty of companies with 10% or fewer of the employees that we have that generate multiples of our revenue. So heavily FT dependent. 60% of our expenses are salary expenses. Now, that other 40% has to cover a, a, an awful lot. Um, we are not driven by our bottom line. We are a mission-driven organization. And that means that we have to do some things that don't generate a return on the investment that we put into them. You know? uh, we generate a margin to support our mission. We don't determine our mission based on what generates a margin for us. Uh, and so that distinguishes us from, from you know, most other uh, for-profit um, uh, private enterprises. Uh, and that's a particular challenge for us. There are things that we do because we're supposed to do them, not because it, it would make sense for um, the finance team that, that we do them. And so we, if we're going to continue to be able to provide services that don't return an investment, we need to figure out how we're going to do them more efficiently, more cheaply. Not only more efficiently and more cheaply for ourselves, but more efficiently and more cheaply for the people who consume what we produce, which is hopefully good health. Um, let me make a, uh, a comparison, um, because I think it's, it's helpful in terms of thinking how digital tools have the potential to revolutionize what we do. So go back in time. 10 years ago, 2007, 2008, Marriott Hotels had um, about, I think the number is, yeah, 1 million rooms in all of its hotels across the United States. Uh, it had a net worth of about $30 billion. And uh, the chair, of Marriott Hotels was really excited that they were entering the digital era because when you walked into a Marriott, there was a wall that had the temperature outside and local amenities and where the restaurants were. Uh, and he, he wrote in his blog about Marriott entering the digital era. You know, he actually hand wrote it and had somebody type it up and put it into the blog. That's how he did that. Now, what, what else was happening 10 years ago? There were, there were three guys in San Francisco 
who thought that they could use the internet to crowd share rooms that were available in people's houses. So Marriott, $30 billion market cap 10 years ago, 1, billion, 1 million rooms, three guys in San Francisco who have 50 rooms in San Francisco for a convention that was coming through San Francisco and sold a third of them. Who are those three guys? Airbnb. In 2018, Airbnb has 4.5 million rooms available. Airbnb has a market cap of $30 billion. Marriott still has 1.5 million rooms and still has a market cap of $30 million. And on Airbnb's busiest day, Airbnb had 2.5 million occupied beds across the world. And Marriott is now trying to get into Airbnb's business 10 years later. Tell me how that's going to work. So I think that there are two embedded points here. You know, one is that we can use technology to allow us to do what we do much more cheaply. Airbnb, with $30 billion market cap, has 175 employees. I mean, think about that. They multiply those 175 employees into a system that manages 4.5 million beds across the world. Those are the kinds of innovations that we need to strive for in healthcare. Doing more of what we have always done isn't going to help us a whole lot. And if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it, and 10 years from now, we're going to look like Marriott. And we can't afford to do that either. So I think an important lesson to keep in mind. Um, some trends that I think are going to be important for us. One is in the area of education. Uh, we are going to train more and more healthcare professionals in environments that are no longer face-to-face. Uh, I think we're, we're still as advanced as we are here at UAMS in, in simulation training. This will be considered baby steps compared to what is going to be available 10 years from now. Uh, you'll be able to practice a, a, a surgical procedure from your, your desktop within a couple of years. Uh, and the, the training will be just as good as being in, in an actual operating room itself. Uh, so distance education will be more and more central to uh, our central core mission. Um, but in addition, we will need to train our trainees how to manage patients from a distance. So we will need to make sure that as we are thinking about how we develop our educational programs, we begin to specifically teach our healthcare providers how to be virtual nurses and how to be virtual physicians. That's not in the future. You know, if you go to St. Louis, Mercy has a virtual hospital right now. There are no patients in that hospital, but there are nurses, there's doctors running around in scrubs, nurses managing multiple floors from a distance, physicians managing uh, acute medical problems that are happening in emergency rooms in a different part of the state. This is really going to be something that we do. 
And we'll need to be cognizant of the fact that we need to train our trainees how to do this right. The training experience is going to be different for for us. And as good as we are at at issues like interprofessional education, we should be world-class in being able to do this. And I think with a committed effort, we can be very quickly seen as the premier place to go if you want to train in how to do virtual medicine correctly. Um, Discovery and innovation is going to continue to evolve for us. And, And we need to make sure that we are keeping up with advances that are occurring, especially on the computational side where so much is happening so quickly. Uh, Remember how groundbreaking it was when a computer beat a chess master? You know, that was really not that long ago. You know, and now, you know, you can't even conceive of a world where the computer can't do that. You know, we need to think about those things that technology will, will enable us to do better And the more that we can offload some of the grunt work for us, the better off we will be. Have any of you visited the Watson campus in lower Manhattan? If you're ever ever in New York, you should make an effort to go down and visit that campus. When I was living in New York, I, I probably went down there two or three times a year. One of the projects that they have is amazing. What they do is they take an electronic medical record for a patient coming from Epic, they take all the information, and they turn it into a history and physical, like the history and physicals we used to write out by hand. You know, with the right information in the right place. Uh, you know, the same kind of history and physical that, that Dr. Barney March would, would have written out or that I would have typed up. And what's amazing is that we're using artificial intelligence to take the same information that we used to have that currently is in a a bundled-up situation and just revert it back to information that we can actually understand. So, you know, this is actually laying artificial intelligence on top of an electronic medical record to take us back in time to to records that actually are cogent and and make sense for us. uh, you know, I think it, in some ways it's kind of a, a perversion of technology that we are using one technology to uncorrupt another technology that has kind of been thrust upon us. But, but that's where we're at. And, and my hope is that as technology evolves that we will also consider ourselves to be at a very primitive state in terms of electronic medical records right now. And that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we'll actually see them as enabling technologies rather than the disabling technologies that that most of us who use them feel that they are. Uh, Other changes that are going to happen. Uh, I think that um, Curtis touched on this when when he said, where you live shouldn't determine whether you live or die. Uh, I think we're going to become more sophisticated in how we think about regionalization of health care and also what destination means. uh, Right now, UAMS here in Little Rock is a destination for stroke care. You know, if you have a serious stroke problem in the state of Arkansas, this is where you need to be. Um, How do we disperse the ability to deliver that care? 
because if you live in, in Jonesboro, you do not need to drive two and a half hours while you're stroking out and losing two million neurons per minute. How can we disseminate that information, that, that uh, the ability to provide that kind of care uh, so that we don't have those frictive costs of health care that we're not accounting for, uh, that we're, we're not delaying care that we deliver to patients, and that uh, our patients are able to stay in their communities that they know with their primary care physicians who, who know them well and with their families uh, and still receive the quality of care that you would expect here at UAMS. Um, we're also going to continue to see consolidation within the healthcare industry. And uh, I, I don't think that we actually know what to expect as that happens. Most of the consolidation that we have seen so far, I would say up until a couple of years ago, has been horizontal consolidation. So hospitals buying hospitals, hospital systems forming. You know, I've done that twice. Did it at UNC and, and did it um, in New York. Uh, you get economies of scale for the healthcare systems that way. You, you don't provide much benefit to patients, though. Uh, and you don't reduce costs uh, by, uh, through horizontal consolidation. They're creating uh, large healthcare systems. In fact, costs tend to go up uh, when, you, when you consolidate. And the reason why that is is that you are able to bargain more powerfully with insurance companies for fee-for-service contracts. Um, and, and so that has simply driven up healthcare costs as we have horizontally integrated. And you know, there are not many single standalone hospitals in the United States right now that are, are financially healthy. You know, we've got a series of, of hospitals here in Arkansas uh, along the Delta in, 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 in the southeastern uh, part of the state that are existing on a sub-1.5% sub margin every year. Uh, it won't take much to put a, hosp a hospital with a margin like that under. And let me tell you, we are lucky because we have expanded Medicaid in the state of Arkansas that there have been no hospital closures in the state over the past five years, whereas every contiguous state around us has seen five or more hospital closures. That's good. That's good news. Bad news is if one hospital closes in the state of Arkansas, at least 10 hospitals will close. Because the conditions that would cause one hospital to close in the state of Arkansas exist in 10 or 20 or 30 hospitals in the state. Uh, and that will be very perilous for us. So, the, so the, you know, as we have consolidated, we have left orphan hospitals in medical deserts uh, in a great deal of jeopardy. But there's another kind of consolidation that I think we need to be concerned about, and that's vertical consolidation. Okay, CDS and Aetna. Uh, and we don't know how that's really going to play out. What happens when Amazon goes into the pharmacy business? You know? I used to go to record stores. You know, there aren't many record stores around because everybody buys their CDs on Amazon. Well, what happens when everybody buys their drugs on Amazon? On Amazon? You, know? you know? It'll be as hard to find a pharmacy as it is to find a record store. I think there's two record stores in, in Little Rock. What if there's only two pharmacies in Little Rock? Yeah, that would be a game changer for us. And we need to think about how that's going to impact us. Uh, and then we have the whole issue of virtualization. And, and you know, I, I think we, we live it and breathe it here, and we probably understand it better than uh, it is understood in, in most, most places. Um, 
but you know, we will have more mobile services. Uh, we will think about how we do things like um, uh, mobile stroke services, where we are doing CT scans and uh, injecting TPA in the field to patients rather than waiting for the patients to be brought to the emergency room, scanning the patients in one of our CT scanners, and then starting TPA. Um, you know, the, our ability to use those sorts of technologies, I think, will be dramatically beneficial to the patients that we take care of. Um, we'll also be doing a lot of work that is going to supplement, augment, and sometimes replace uh, the, um, uh, the care that is currently provided um, by real-life healthcare professionals. And as we think about the injection of technology into healthcare, uh, I think it's going to be important to distinguish whether that technology is an enabler or it's a replacer. Not that one is better or worse than the other, but, but we need to have that conversation. For instance, we talked about bots. Um, you know, we, uh, at New York Presbyterian, uh, took about 30 FTEs out of our system by having bots do pre-authorizations. Uh, it takes a human being about 20 minutes to pre-authorize a procedure for a patient. It takes a bot one and a half minutes to pre-authorize a procedure. And that bot works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you take 30 people out of the healthcare system, you reduce costs, you move those people into positions where they're actually practicing at the top of their game rather than doing repetitive tasks over and over and over again. Um, that's the ideal. Um, but we could also put ourselves in a situation in which we have robots running through the hospital providing most of our environmental services work. Well, if you're a, an individual who doesn't have a lot of education, you spent your life doing environmental services and suddenly you're no longer needed what is the impact that will have on the community? Those are real considerations that, that we need to have. We have a moral obligation to think about them. We also have a moral obligation to think about how the technology that we introduce impacts things that don't make us the same, things that make us different. And there's a real potential that as we automate that some of that automation will actually harm us rather than helping us in ways that are important to who we are. I'll give you an example. Um, if you ask Google Translate to translate from English into a Croatian dialect, she is a he is a nurse translate it into Croatian, and then translate it back, the back translation comes back, she is a nurse. Because there's no way of denoting in Croatian that a nurse can be anything other than a female. So that in, you know, the fact that the nurse was a male gets lost coming back and forth. And that seems trivial, but think about how diverse the patient populations we manage are. You know, 
And what if a machine learning algorithm develops an algorithm that works for you? And it works very well for you. And you think it's genius. You know, it, it you know, controls your blood pressure simply by telling you to exercise five minutes a day at a very specific time. You think, wow, that's incredible. And you apply it to Laura, and Laura's blood pressure goes up. Because Laura's different than you. you know? Those are things that we need to worry about. We need to worry about the fact that an algorithm might work very well for 90% of the population and might harm 10% of the population. And guess what? In the United States, the people who are going to be most vulnerable to falling into that 10% are the people who are less well represented. So we have the potential to create enormous biases that negatively impact the people who can least serve to be impacted the most. That's something that I think we, we definitely need to keep in mind. Now, why have we waited so long to introduce digital technologies into healthcare? You know, this has been around for decades. Um, uh, Andrew Ng, who's a professor at Stanford, uh, has a quote that I like. Uh, and I think it's really, when you think about it, it's really uh, uh, illustrative. Artificial intelligence is the new electricity. That's cool. Right? It's like you know, we harnessed electricity and now we got light bulbs. You know, now we got all these things that we can do in our house that we couldn't do before. You know, that's the upside. Well, how long have we had the power of electricity available to us? You know, Thomas Edison, you know, maybe going back all the way to Benjamin Franklin. How many of you drive an electric car? You know, a few of you do, but it's taken us a century to get to the point where we can harness electricity to help you drive your car. And I think there's a lot to be said about um, that same concept applying to artificial intelligence. You know, it's been around for a while. For some applications, it's going to take us a long time to actually figure out how to apply it. Uh, and you know, I think everybody probably now is familiar with the idea of big data hubris, the idea that you know, if, we, if we're able to consume you know, the entirety of the data that's available to us, that will solve out all of our problems. Um, but the truth is that uh, you know, machine learning algorithms are, are actually much better at doing things that are hard for us and, and are really challenged in doing things that are easy for humans to do. As we think about applying digital technologies to healthcare, we need to understand and realize that it's not going to solve all of our problems. And you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that we have, and I use this term in the most endearing sort of way, but I'm glad that we have geeks who are looking for ways of taking digital technology and applying them to healthcare, because I could never do that. Um, but it's also important for us to think about what are the tasks, not, not what are the, you know, the digital underpinnings, but what are the tasks that we really think that tools could help us with? Okay? And telemedicine, 
That's a tool that helps us to manage a patient from a distance. You know, that's a great idea, you know, and it works. Um, few of us will actually develop digital tools. Few of us will develop, you know, uh, a machine learning algorithm to help improve patient flow through the hospital. You know, but all of us can think about what are those ways that technology will enable a nurse to be able to provide better care at the bedside. Uh, All of us can think about ways in which digital health can make it easier for us to manage an electronic medical record so that we're spending less time in front of the computer and more time face-to-face doing something that computers are probably never going to be able to do. I think that that is the point in time where we are at right now. I think the world of opportunity is open to us. Uh, we don't know what it, the face of medicine will look like five years from now, but we can be assured that it's going to be very different than it currently is, and that we'll be doing things in a very, very different way than we currently do them. And you know, I, I think the idea that we can use blockchain technology to make sure that there's never any uncertainty about the medication that a patient should be receiving, and that no nurse or medical student or pharmacist ever, ever, ever has to do medicine reconciliation again. You know, that would be amazing. You know, those are the kinds of things that computers can do and should be doing for us. But I don't expect that a machine learning algorithm will ever truly take the place of the ability to evoke compassion for a family member who's distraught because their mother is sick with cancer. I don't think that people in the state of Arkansas will sleep better at night because of digital health. They'll sleep better at night because they know that they're healthy, but if they have a catastrophic medical problem, that UAMS is there to take care of them. And that's the core of what we need to retain as we think about how we apply digital technologies. You know, I want to have a mobile stroke unit, not because I want to have a fancy ambulance running around with UAMS on the side and great technology on the inside. Um, I want to have a mobile stroke unit because of the first patient that I saw treated with one in New York. 92-year-old female. It was our very first mobile stroke run in Manhattan, Upper East Side. Having a stroke, EMS called us. We activated the mobile stroke unit. The next afternoon, after being treated, she had a completely normal neurologic examination and went home. That, to me, is the best blending possible of technology and the humanity that's at our core as healthcare professionals. As always, let's keep the conversation going. What are some ways you think we could harness technology for the good of both patients and patient providers? You can find and follow us on Twitter at Learn Telehealth, on Facebook, the same name, Learn Telehealth, And while you're there, leave a like and follow the page. 
If social media isn't your thing, you can always leave us an email at info at Thanks for listening.